Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, this morning, Brother John James read the end of 1 Peter chapter 3. So today we will begin our look, if you will, toward the end of this chapter. He began in verse 13. Now we're going to look at chapter 3. This is our first look at the end of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to look at it in the context of the chapter. So basically, we're not going to zoom in, if you will, on the end of the chapter today. We will do that next week. But first, the reason I want to do it this way, the reason I believe we should do it this way, is because there's a, there's a fair amount, actually a great deal of confusion about some of the things that are revealed at the end of chapter 3 of 1 Peter. Uh, the doctrine that's called purgatory, the false doctrine of purgatory, actually comes from this passage. And in the context, if you just read the simple, con- if you just read what it says in the context of what's being said, it becomes as absurd as that doctrine is. You realize just how much it's necessary. One of the things that you'll find about false teaching is false teaching has to be forced into the passage. You can't just let it come out of the passage because it's not there. So you have to go into the passage and you have to start almost making things up. Actually, you do have to make some things up, but you also have to twist some of the things that are very clear. And what you have to do above all is to not let the passage just speak for itself. So what I'd like us to do today is just simply look at what we've been seeing in 1 Peter and then allow chapter 3 just to speak for itself. And you'll see together, we'll see together this morning, very, very simply and very clearly what God is saying having to do with our Lord Jesus Christ dying, what, it, what, our, what it's saying having to do with our Lord Jesus Christ preaching to those that were alive in the days of Noah and are now in prison, and what it has to do with baptism, how these things go together, and how those things go together with what we're looking at, because they are not isolated. They come in chapter 3. So let's see that together. Before we do, let's pray. And then uh, we'll begin uh, looking together first at, uh, we have to look at the context, which takes us back into chapter 2, really back into chapter 1 for a moment, and then we'll look at that. Father, your word does not need my help. In fact, what your word needs is for the men of God to simply express, to expose what's there. Your word all by itself is alive. And it is powerful. And it will move throughout all of the pews. In fact, it will move throughout all of those that are watching someplace, not even in the room, not even in the building, Lord, and those that will see this later. Lord, your word will never return to you void. And you say that it will accomplish that which you send it forth to accomplish. Lord, we're saddened that so many would use your word for their purposes. Lord, we realize that in the age in which we live, we live in that time when people are heaping to themselves teachers because they have itching ears. They have certain things that they want to hear, and so they'll find that, and that's what they'll do. But Lord, we don't want to be this way. We don't want to be this way individually, and we don't want to be this way as a church. Father, we simply want your word to speak to our hearts. We want your Holy Spirit to accomplish the work that only he can, and we really want your Son to to receive all of the honor and all of the glory that he deserves. We thank you, Father, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
I want you to turn back to chapter 1 first, if you would, with me. Chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. 3 through 9. Uh, again, I'm not going to make a lot of comment on the things that we go back and read, um, but you're welcome to go back and to, and to find the, past, the sermons that cover these passages and uh, listen to them if you need more exposition. But I just want you to hear it. It's clear by itself. Chapter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, we're going to read through verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at that last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, that Lord Jesus, having not seen you love, in whom, though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end, the goal of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Now what I want you to notice is this. It says in verse 3, we see the, the past. We see that God hath begotten us again according to the lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This book is speaking to those who are new creatures, who have been saved, who are born again. And, and for those for whom this is true, this is a past event. Some t- sometime in your past, you were saved. You were made a new creature. You were born again. And praise God for that. You were given life by God. Now, if that's not true for you, it can be true for you. If it's a future event for you, it is still available to you if you'll simply allow God to be who He is, if you'll humble yourself, if you'll repent of your own good works and allow Him to save you through the blood of Christ. So that's the past. The future, it says, so we have been saved, past tense, to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. This is something that we are looking forward to. We are looking forward to receiving that which is our inheritance because of the salvation that we have received. Then in verse 5, we have the present tense. So in verse 3, you have the past tense. In verse 4, you have the future tense. Then in verse 5, you have the present tense. And God is going to deal largely from this point forward in the book with the present tense, what it means for us now while we wait. If you are a new creature, then thank God you're a new creature. And the future is wonderfully bright for all of the children of God. And by the way... And when you talk about eternity, if you take the time scale of eternity or just thousands of years, you realize that it's almost over. 
from the time you were saved, from the time I was saved, to the time that I'm going to be with Jesus is going to be less than 100 years. From the time that I was saved to the time that I'm with Jesus in, with, in sinless perfection, less than 100 years. Amen? Praise God for that. But this book makes it very, very clear that God says, now, now, while you're here, not only are there difficulties, but those difficulties have purposes. They have specific things that God is wanting to accomplish. And one of the primary things we're going to see in chapter 3 is this. The people around us need to see the difference in our lives while we go through the same difficulties that they go through. This is what God wants to accomplish. This doesn't mean that everyone who sees you go through the difficulty in the victory that's available in Christ is going to receive Christ. It doesn't even mean that they're going to rejoice in the victory. Some of them are going to behave very poorly toward you while you're rejoicing in the goodness of God in your own life. And, and, and God wants us to understand, don't be surprised by this and don't be angry with them during this time. If they're going to reject God, if they're going to reject the same goodness that saved you, if that's, their, if that's their attitude, if that's their desire, that's between them and God. But God would not have us to turn against those that would hurt us. God would have us to suffer and to suffer well, knowing, one, He is more than enough, right? His grace is sufficient for us. And two, they need to see God able to overcome suffering in our life. They need to see the love of God in your life while they treat you poorly. They need to see it. I, I testify personally that it was the goodness that I saw in a man named Bob Bornfleth, the difference, the kindness that I saw in him that caused me to realize he had something. He actually had something that I did not have. And what he had was the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the difference. And when I asked him, what do you have that I don't have? He was very, very glad to tell me about the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I didn't want to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ because I didn't want to talk about religion at all. I wanted to talk about love. I wanted to talk about peace. I wanted to talk about the things that I wanted. But what I didn't want to have to do was to surrender my life in order to have them. And he, and he was very, not, not, not mean-spirited about it, not arrogant about it, not um, cold-hearted about it. He was just very, very honest about the fact that you can have the forgiveness of sins if you want it, or you cannot have it if you don't want it. That's between you and God. But if you want the things that you say you want, you'll have to repent. If you want peace, if you want joy, if you want goodness in your life, you'll have to repent. And you'll have to be a new creature first. And then you'll have these things in your life. And it made a wonderful, obviously, a wonderful change. Now, interestingly, my birthday was yesterday. And I had forgotten this. A year ago, on my birthday, the person that led me to Christ died. So it was a year ago yesterday that Bob Bornfleth died and went to be with the Lord. And I did his funeral uh, about a year ago now. His daughter posted yesterday... Um, a year ago, my dad went to be with the Lord. And she said, some people say, a year ago, I lost someone. She said, but I didn't lose anyone because I know where he is. And it just, as I think about, as I think about that he's already entered in, 
He's already entered in to that which he lived such a way that I will now get to enter into. See, he's received the reward of the things that he lived when we were treating him poorly, right? Because we were in the Navy, right? And you work in, you know, the labs that you work in in the Navy, there's always a little bit of goofing off. There's always a little bit of picking on other people. They're just, you know, it's just part of being a young man, right? I was in my uh, early 20s. He wasn't, by that way, that young. He was probably in his 30s at that point. But the difference was he took the, what do you want to call it? Abuse? He took the abuse. He was a very sober man, meaning he was a very quiet man. He was a very, he wasn't, he didn't goof off himself, if you understand what I'm saying. And he didn't just take it well. He took it caring about us, if you understand what I'm saying. Instead of being angry with us, instead of telling us what, what you, know, you know, just calm down, that kind of a thing, he took it well. And he cared more about us than he did about himself. This is what God is wanting us to see here. Now, what I want you to notice is this. The key to this, the key to this is verse 8. While we're waiting, while we're waiting, whom we have not seen, right? I mean, how many of you have ever seen Jesus? If you raise your hand, we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> right? How many of you have ever seen Jesus? We haven't seen Jesus. And yet we have, right? Right. Somehow through the eye of faith, we have seen Jesus. When you read the Gospels and you and you see the acts of the Lord Jesus, you you see such marvelous things. At one point, the disciples are going to say, would you show us the father? And he's going to say, have I been with you so long and you've not seen the father? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. You want to see the glory of God? Then look in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see the goodness of God? See how the Lord Jesus not only behaved himself while walking on the earth, but the power that he has to cause us to behave ourselves now while we live here. So we rejoice. It says, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving, looking forward, we're going to receive the end of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. But it says that now, now we live a life believing, so we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, Turn to chapter 2. Chapter 2, a, a section of your Bible, a section of this book, really, I guess I should say, begins in verse 11 of chapter 2. What we're going to find, and we've talked about it already, what we're going to find is this. In this passage, starting in chapter uh, 2, verse 11, all the way down through chapter 3, talking about in, uh, in verse 8, what we're going to see is this. God deals, we don't have time to look at this, but you can go back and look at it. God deals with us walking joyfully and without hurting others in our community, right? That starts in uh, verses 11, 12, 13, 14, uh, 15. It goes to verse 18. In verse 18, it says servants. That's our workplace. So God deals with us living in whatever society we live in, whatever community we live in. God says, in the community where you live, you can be beneficial to the people who live around you. You can respond well to the people around you, no matter what your society is like, no matter what your community is like, no matter what your neighborhood is like, you can walk with Jesus in that neighborhood. That's what God wants us to understand. That's number one. Then he says, now let's go to work. Because it's one thing to live in a community where a person that you might run into occasionally treats you poorly, but let's go to work. Let's go to work and say you work where there's a boss. 
who works, who's over you, and he treats you poorly regularly. I mean, has anybody ever worked in a place where you actually woke up in the morning and really didn't want to go to work? Anybody ever worked in that place? Raise your hand. Up nice and high. It's a lot. All right, now let's put it down. Let's do it over again. Is there anybody who had that attitude who wasn't just being lazy? Okay, I mean, you know, you woke up Monday morning, you wake up and say, I don't want to go to work, right? You know, and everybody feels that way. Okay, that's one thing. But actually thought, I don't want to go to work. Where I work, we're going through a hardship, a difficulty. And, and when I go there, I feel the weight of that difficulty, even in the way I'm treated while I'm there. Raise your hand if that's true for you. Pretty much everybody that raised their hand before. All right, now, so we all understand this. And what God is saying is, I am more than enough when you do that. But now you go to chapter 3, and this is where I'm going to begin reading. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3. In chapter 3, God is going to deal first with being at home, whether you're an, a, a saved wife with an unsaved husband or a saved husband with an unsaved wife, because even more difficult than going to work in a place where people treat you poorly because of your faith, living in a place daily, going home where that's true is even more difficult. But what God is going to show is, he has this grace sufficient for that. And then finally, he's going to go into the church house. He's actually going to go into the assembly, into the congregation, and tell us how we should be treating each other and to recognize that even if the people you go to church with behave poorly from time to time. Now, let me say this about the people we go to church with behaving poorly. If you're born again, and I'm born again, we should never have a problem with each other. Never. Never. Right? Right? Very simple. Kenny's right here. Kenny lets us sit in the front row. So Kenny, Kenny's born, Kenny's a new creature. And I spent a fair amount of time with Kenny, and I would testify that I believe that Kenny is born again, that he really is a new creature. And Kenny and I have traveled quite a bit together. Yes? We've traveled quite a bit together. Uh, and we've gone, you know, we've actually, I mean, we've, you know, gone to different continents together. And we get along reasonably well. Not perfectly. Because Kenny can be hard to get along with from time to time. <laughs> Do you see how that works? Right? See, the reason that we don't get along perfectly with the other people in the church is because, well, they're just not perfect people. Right? If they were more like me, we'd get along just fine. Right? So here's the problem. The problem with flesh is your flesh and my flesh don't agree. Do you understand? That's the problem with flesh. Now, listen, when Kenny walks after the Spirit and I walk after the Spirit, we get along just fine. Why? Well, because the same spirit that lives in Kenny lives in me. The same spirit of God that made Kenny a new creature made me a new creature. And if you and I, listen, hear me, if you and I will recognize that those that we go to church with can walk in their flesh and behave poorly, we will stop judging each other. We will pray for each other. We will care about each other. Let's read the passage. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation, by the way you live your life, by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, Whose adorning, let it not be with the outward adorning of the plating of the hair and the wearing of gold and the putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the women also 
who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, now we're going into the church, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrawise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. Now look, look up here. See, this doesn't say go to a church where everybody's perfect. And, we, and again, I know I say this. Every time I say this, I say we have a really good church family. We really do. We are a, we are a very gracious, kind church. And I'm not saying that. I, I'm told that often by people who either visit or missionaries that come into the area. And I, and I thank God for that. But all of us are aware, each one of us are aware in my flesh. I'm just aware of my flesh. I get to see yours occasionally, but I have to live with mine, Right? So I know me. When you behave poorly, I know that when you behave poorly, you're behaving poorly because you have the same flesh that I have. And if you walk after that flesh, it's ugly. Yes? And it hurts. When you walk after your flesh, it hurts when you walk after your flesh. We hurt each other when we walk after the flesh. And so what God is saying is this. Look, look at this. He that will love life and see good days. Is that what you'd like? And the answer is, yeah, that's what I'd like. Well, then listen. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. If you would, that, that our church family, that your neighborhood, that the, where you work, that your household, if you would that your household see good days, then you be the kind of person that only Christ can make you. Amen? The only hope that we have of this being true here at Tidewater as a, as a how would you say, it, a deep reality is if I will do it and so will you. But if I seek that you do it, it will do you no good. I must seek what? That I do it. I must reckon, I know my, listen, long before you see my flesh, I feel my flesh. Does everybody understand what I mean when I say that? Yes, right? Long before my wife hears me raise my voice, I feel me raising my voice. Do you understand what I'm saying? I feel the, 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 the battle of the flesh in my heart long before my family ever sees it. And praise God, because of the grace of God and because of the power of God, there's less and less of it in our household because he continues to win in our lives. Amen? That's what God wants to accomplish. This is what he's saying. So let's keep reading. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Now, this is not talking. Hear me. Please hear me. This is not talking about Christians misbehaving. This is talking about Christians seeking God and those that aren't Christians don't seek God. The point is this. You will have failure in your own heart. But God is open, always open to hear your cry. 
Always. Do you understand? It's not saying when you behave yourself poorly, God won't hear you. It's saying that he does not not hear the prayers of an evil world. He doesn't hear that. But what he does hear, as John mentioned in Sunday school that I say all the time, he does hear the humble cry. And he always hears his children. When you fail, immediately acknowledge it. Just acknowledge it. Acknowledge it before God, and if I may, acknowledge it out loud. Acknowledge it in your own family. I remember many years ago, a teenage girl was babysitting her siblings, and she was having a hard time. And she called, for some reason, she called me to tell me. And, uh, and then I said, you know what I would do if I were you? I would sit all of your siblings down and tell them that you have failed. And she said, they'll never respect me if I do that. And I said, no, they'll never respect you if you don't. You see? Because she had failed, and they were angry about it. And she wanted to be able to regain control of the house. This is a teenage girl babysitting her, her, her siblings, right? She, but what she wanted to do was rule over her siblings. You see, right? God doesn't want us to rule over each other. He wants us to love one another. And this is what, this is what God is wanting to accomplish in our lives. Notice that he says this. And this is where John began to read. And who is he that will harm you? if you be followers of that which is good. So here's the simple, look, please look up here. I'm going to go through the rest of this message, the rest of the passage, probably pretty quickly. But this is what I want you to, as we go into it, I want you to take how we got here together. If you will walk, hear me, please hear me. If you personally will walk in humility with God and trust Him to be the power that can change your lives, nothing else will matter. Nobody can hurt you. Nobody can hurt you. Do you understand? Nobody can hurt you. That's what it says. Let's look at it. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? Now, this goes back to the good days that we're talking about in verse 10, right? That's what it's talking about. You want to have good days at Tidewater? You want to have good days in your own house? Then be honest. Seek after the things that God would have you to seek after. It says eschew evil. Don't want it in your house. Don't bring it in your house. Don't be the one that allows for it in your house. Now, here's, look, please look up here. This is far, hear me, this is far easier than we make it. The problem, listen, I'm telling you, this is the problem. The problem is you want to fix everybody else in your house. Stop it. Stop it. Let God deal with you. Let me say this. Should the rest of your family care nothing about walking with God? That's the very point of the first few verses of chapter 3. If you're the only one in your house that really wants to walk with God, you can walk with God in peace in your own house if nobody else wants to. But praise God where the household has people, many people who are born again. Because now each one of us can pursue that same peace. I can pursue it. My wife can pursue it. My daughter, Rebecca, there's only three of us at our house right now. So in our house right now, if I pursue peace and Kathy pursues peace and Rebecca pursues peace, if we eschew evil, if we hate selfishness, then our house can, not only can we have peace in our house, but people can come into our house and experience that peace when they come into our house. Amen? Same thing's true about our church family. The same thing's true about your neighborhood. The same thing's true about where you go to work. If there be more than one Christian where you go to work, now you can have fellowship together and you can say to each other, you know what, let's be like this. 
Instead of being our little team and then be their team, let's not do that. Let's be on their team. Let's love them. Let's care about them. Let's recognize that they're lost. Let's recognize that they don't know how to do good. Let's recognize that they're living in evil because they have nothing other than that in their own heart. Let's recognize that together and let's help them. Amen? If you can have that, and everybody doesn't have a coworker who's like that. That's not possible. But if you have one, then have that kind of fellowship. And we do have that here, praise God, at our church. And so even if someone hurts us in our church family, we don't have to say, well, I'm going to draw teams now, right? Over here is Team Kenny, right? Everybody who likes Kenny more than they do me, which is probably be a bigger team, by the way, okay? You know, so Kenny and Chuck have a difficulty. And, and Kenny goes out and says, look, this is what Pastor did to me. And, and they say, man, he's a scoundrel. And I'm going to be on your team, Kenny. And I'm over here and I, you know, I only got a small few, you know what I'm saying? I come over here and I say, well, this is what, this is what I did, but I was really being the right person when I did it. And Kenny overreacted to it. Amen. You're, you're right. Kenny, he overreacts to everything. And you got team Chuck over here. And then what do you have? You have division in the church. You have malice in the church or in your house or at work or in your neighborhood. And what God is saying is you don't have to have this. And you will be treated poorly if you want to walk in that which is good. Why? Because we live in this present evil world. You know, and men love, boy, I tell you, when Jesus says this, it just, every time I read this passage, it breaks my heart. Men love darkness rather than light. That doesn't even make any sense to me. Men love darkness. That doesn't make any sense at all. Here's the Lord Jesus in all of his goodness, in all of his glory, in all of his kindness, in all of his grace, in all of his power, saying, I will set you free. And people saying, leave me alone. I want to be like I am. That doesn't make any sense to me at all, does it? And when I was first saved, I was really confused by this. Because when I was first saved, I thought, oh, wow, if I had known this a long time ago, I would have signed up for this a long time ago. I, I was so glad to be saved from my sins and to be a new creature. And I thought, I'll just tell everybody, right? Because everybody will want this. And I was just started telling everybody. And I was shocked by how many people said this. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I remember my roommates. I literally remember my roommates leaning into the window of, 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 of my car and saying to my, to my fiance, I think at that point, to, to Kathy, he said, goodbye, Kathy. And I said, maybe we'll see you again. And he said, goodbye, Kathy. Not even goodbye, Chuck. Goodbye, Kathy. What he was saying is, I don't want to be around you anymore. And you want to know the difference? The difference between me before and me after? Christ. No longer did I drink. No longer did I go to bars and get in fights with him. No longer did, we bring, did I allow for them to bring girls back to the apartment. All of these things that changed. And none of this was done in a, I'm a better than you person. I'm a greater person than you are. You need to be like me. None of that. It's just like, guys, guys, we don't have to live that way anymore. We don't have to live that way anymore. We don't have to live that way anymore. But men love darkness rather than light. And so we're here in this present evil world telling people, you can be free. You can be free. And they say, leave me alone. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Let's read the rest of the passage. But, and if, ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason. Why are you like this? The reason of the hope that is in you. And when you answer them, answer them with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, that ye may, that, excuse me, that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. 
This is why it's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Look up here. See, here's the problem. Too many Christians are actually jerks. And see, when we're a jerk, the world can say, why do I want anything to do with that Christ? Why do I want anything to do with what they're doing? They're just like we are, only they got a holier-than-thou attitude while they're doing it. So if we're going to walk with Christ in joy, in peace, then while we're walking with Christ in joy and peace, we need to treat the people around us with that joy and peace. We need to be gracious to them. We need to be, listen, if you find that we're supposed to treat them differently, you show it to me. Because I'm telling you, your entire Bible is full of treat these people like they're lost because they are. And what they need to be is set free. But they're not going to be set free by you acting like you're better than they are or treating them horribly because of the sin in their life. Do you remember the sin in your life? I do. Look, I've been saved, you know, literally now, I suppose it's true. I've been saved for, what, 32 years, right? 32 years, is that right? 32 years. 32 years. I've been saved for 32 years. That's a long time. I, boy, do I. I wish it wasn't true. Boy, do I remember what I was like before I was saved. Right? And I still know me, right? Which is why the Apostle Paul says, in me that is in my flesh, there dwelleth. No good thing. He'd been saved for a long time when he said he was the chief of sinners. A long time. Well, if you know you, and you have the Spirit of God living in you, and you know you have the capability of behaving yourself very poorly, why do you charge them when they behave poorly? So it's better. If we're going to suffer, let's suffer because we're doing good, not because we're doing evil. Let's not make our team against their team. Let's treat them with the kindness that God would have us to. For, notice this, the the explanation starts in verse 18. For Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Why did he suffer? Why did he suffer? To bring us to God. Amen? But why did Bob Bornfleth willingly suffer the way we treated him. Why? To bring us to God. Yes? Yes? Then why would God have us to suffer in our community, at our workplace, in our home, and even if our church, in our church if necessary? Why would he have us to suffer in those places? Why? To bring others to Jesus. That's why. Yes? This is the answer. This is what the passage is about. Let's keep looking. Being put to death in the flesh, they killed him. But quickened by the Spirit, they couldn't kill him. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. Now look up here. Jesus went and preached either through Noah or maybe in a Christophany, which simply means that Christ appeared before he, became, uh, became in the, before he came in the flesh. I'm not going to decide which. I don't know which one it is. The point is, when Noah was building the ark for a hundred years, while Noah was being patient building the ark, God was preaching to that generation. But here, what does it say about that generation? Here's what it says about them. It says, in, at the end of verse 19, in prison, the Spirit's in prison. Why? Because they're not in their bodies anymore. 
And where are their spirits? Where are the spirits of those that rejected the long-suffering goodness of God while Noah was building the ark? Where are they? They're in prison. By the way, next week we'll study some of this out so you can see, uh, you can actually see the, the, some of the words, uh, some of the words used in other places so I, can, so I can show you that I'm not just telling you these things, that the, that the passage bears this out very, very clearly. But in chapter 20, we're not going to go there today, but in Revelation chapter 20, it talks about Satan being released from prison. It's the same word. Where is Satan trapped in prison for that time that he's trapped there? And the answer is he's in hell. Right? He's been cast into hell for a period of time. He will be. He's not there right now. Until he's loosed, and then he'll be loosed from that prison. So where are these spirits that Jesus preached to in the days of Noah? Where are they? Well, they're in hell. But listen, but they're in hell because they rejected the goodness of God, the long-suffering of God, the preaching of the gospel for a hundred years while God was making an ark to save them. And then what does he say about the people that heard? Well, how many got in? How many got in the ark? How many could have gotten the ark, by the way? All of them. How many got in the ark? Eight. Whose fault is that? All of them, except for the eight. But you know whose fault it's not? It's not Noah's. It's not Noah's. Because Noah didn't walk around like a jerk while God was preaching to them. Noah told them, look, there's a flood coming. God told me, build this ark, there's a flood coming. God's going to destroy the world. You're going to be in it. If, you're, if you don't get in the ark, you're going to be left on the ground. And if you're left on the ground, the water's going to destroy you. Please don't be destroyed, right? He was a preacher of righteousness. He told them that a righteous God is going to judge the wickedness, but you don't have to be in that group. All you got to do is get in the ark, amen? And they didn't get in the ark. So, so that's the context. So what does, it say, what does it say after this? It talks about they were saved by this water. They got in the ark and they were born up in the very water that destroyed the others. They were rescued. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. You're not saved by baptism. The very, the, the, it explains itself. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is now gone into heaven and at the right hand of God the angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So look up here, and this, is, and this will be the end for t- this today. What is this saying? How many of you have been baptized? Raise your hand if you've been baptized as a believer, right? Believer's baptism. How many of you are born again and you haven't been baptized? Raise your hand if you're born again and you... Raise it high. Don't raise it up nice and high. Okay, some of you need to be baptized, okay? You need to be baptized. Not because it's going to add to your salvation, not because it's going to make you saved, but here's what it is. It's a testimony, to everybody, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. I believe that I died on the cross when he died. I died with him. And when he was resurrected, I have a whole new life. Amen. That's the, that, that's the picture. And here's the thing. Who are the ones that are persecuted? Those people. That's the point. Who are the ones that were persecuted when Noah was building the ark? The ones that were building the ark. Right? Who were the ones that were treated poorly? Noah and his family. Why? Because they believed God in a world that didn't believe God. Who are the ones that are suffering today? Who are the ones who will suffer today according to this passage? That's the whole point of this passage. If you are born again and you have followed the Lord, in in other words, if you have a public testimony, it's not so much about the baptism as it is the public testimony of your salvation, but but following the Lord in believers' baptism makes it very, very clear. Look, in America today, baptism is cheap. But at the time that this was done, baptism meant everything. If you were a Hebrew, which the stranger scatters, speaking largely to a Hebrew tribe, the Hebrew people, if you were a Hebrew and you were baptized in the name of Jesus, they had a funeral for you. 
You follow the Christ who isn't the Christ. That's what they would say. Jesus, isn't, Jesus of Nazareth is not the Christ. We do not believe in him. You following him is not okay with us. We want nothing to do with you anymore. So it meant everything. But what they did when they were baptized is they said, that's okay. It's okay that you think that way about this because I'm telling you he is the Christ. I'm telling you, not only has he set me free from the penalty of my sin, he's setting me free from the power of sin, which means this. If that's true, then they should see good lives in our lives. Yes? Yes? So when they treat us poorly, it shouldn't be because we're jerks. It should be because we tell them in a loving way, you don't have to live like that. You can be set free. God has set me free. Here's the, you know, see the change in my life. I didn't make this change in my life. Jesus made this change in my life. Amen. That's wonderful. And they say, I don't want anything to do with that. And in fact, we're going to treat you poorly if you're going to talk to us about it. You know, what's, what's allowed in America today? And the answer is almost anything. What isn't allowed in America today? Honestly, what isn't allowed in America today? This book. This book, try to bring this book onto the campuses and the colleges or into the schools. Try, try, try to let this book have center place anywhere in America today. Jesus is not accepted in America today. Jesus is summarily rejected in America today. But I'm telling you, Jesus is still who he says he is. Jesus is not who I say he is. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is a great and wonderful savior. And and here's the thing, my words mean nothing if my life doesn't support that, right? What did it say about the wife, the wife who lives with an unsaved husband? She can win him with what? With the word. No, she can't. He won't read it. What can she win him with? Her what? Her conversation, right? The way she lives her life. Conversation is not just talk, right? You know that. Conversation is the way she lives her life. The manner of her living can change his heart. Because this is, what a, this, is what a, this is what an unsaved person is confronted with when they're living around somebody who's saved. They sure are different. They really are different. But who makes the difference? Why do we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory? Because Jesus makes the difference. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I ask you as we continue to, uh, to be around each other and around those in our family, our neighborhood, our workplace, that we would not walk after our ugly flesh, but that we would walk after the Spirit, that we would have the power of God making the difference in our lives that we're not capable of making, that people would really be able to see you making a difference in our lives. Father, I ask you that you use this. I ask you that you use your own word. It is your word, and you're the one that says it's not going to return void. So, Lord, I'm, all I'm asking you to do is to do what you've already promised, that you'll take this word into our hearts today, and that, Lord, in, in any way that we would hurt one another, that we would acknowledge it and say, I don't want to do that. I'm sorry. I shouldn't do that. I'm wrong when I walk in my flesh. I'm wrong when I'm selfish. I'm wrong when I treat you poorly. And not just here in the church, in our own household, Lord, in our own workplace, in our own neighborhood, that we would acknowledge that we, 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 we can hurt each other. And Lord, that we would repent of this and turn away from it. Lord, that we would follow the things that you show us in this passage, that we would pursue speaking nice to each other, speaking well to each other, that we would eschew evil, and that we would walk, Lord, in the light as you are in the light. Thank you, Father, for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.